0: Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Bricella. Boy, is this a good one. I know I say that a lot. This one is really, really, really good. I'm glad you're here today because you were going to love this. I hope. I loved it. Hallie Stanford is here. Hallie Stanford is the president of television at the Jim Henson Company. She leads the company's development and production across television, home entertainment, digital media for both animated and live action formats. So, she has a really interesting take on sort of where we're at with children's programming uh, in terms of the quarantine and COVID and all that. But she also has been with the Jim Henson Company for something like 25 years now. So we talk a lot about sort of the history of the company and the culture of the company and just sort of some of the the highs and lows of working at the Jim Henson Company. I hope everybody had a great weekend out there. It's funny, Hallie and I talk a little bit about Little House on the Prairie in this interview. And just how we're all sort of living like Laura Ingalls Wilder right now in various different iterations, right? Some of us are cooking a lot more than we ever would all the way to, you know, I, I met a woman uh, this past week. She's a mushroom farmer. I bought some mushrooms from her and she was growing her own chickens for meat. She was taking them like the next day to go slaughter them and have them processed and keep them in a deep freezer. So we're all kind of living at <laughs> different shades of, uh, of that Laura Ingalls Wilder experience. But for me this weekend, I started doing a lot of canning. I learned about canning last year. And it's something my grandmother used to do. She always had things preserved. They had a little root cellar in their basement. Uh, but she never taught me how to do it. It was something that I just kind of have this memory of canned vegetables being around their house. So I've talked on the show before about this CSA that I'm a part of, community-supported agriculture, where there's a farm near me. We pay one price at the beginning of the season, and then you're sort of essentially buying stock in that farm. So if they have a really bad year, if there's droughts or pests or whatever, and the harvest is terrible, you might not get anything. You might get a little bit. If the harvest is good, you get a good amount of produce. And if the harvest is really good, you you get to reap some of the benefit now of, of having a productive year. So this is kind of the first week where we've transitioned from just having fresh vegetables that we're eating and cooking with to preserving for next year. We're finally kind of at the point where there's so many <laughs> vegetables rolling in that if I didn't preserve them, they'd probably go bad. So I made my first quart of sauerkraut of the year, which was really exciting. Got a giant head of cabbage on Saturday and cut that up. And if you haven't done any preserving before sauerkraut is definitely the place to start. It is so easy. All it is is cabbage and salt. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot of special equipment or anything like a, a quart jar is all you need. And, uh, so I got a thing of sauerkraut going and I uh, had an extra cucumber. I cut that up and got two pints of pickles out of it. So that's the beginning of storing up for the winter. So that was awesome. And then on Sunday, I was cleaning up in the yard and I had this old wood pile of like firewood. We don't have a fireplace here. We just have a fire pit in the backyard. So we're, you know, maybe making five or six fires a year. Like it's not like we're rapidly going through firewood. And all the firewood I have is just from trees that have come down here at my property. It's not, uh, I'm not buying firewood to have fires with. So I was cleaning up this wood pile. I had built a new wood rack to kind of keep everything on and keep it up off the ground. And some of the logs that were older at the bottom of the pile had kind of started to rot. And as I was loading them into the wheelbarrow, I was noticing the bark kind of falling off and just not sure what to do with it. And then I realized, oh, this is what mulch is, right? Bark mulch. It's just the bark of a tree that's kind of half decomposed. And so I literally just started like picking up all these pieces off the ground and shredding it in the wheelbarrow by hand. And then I spread it out in the garden. I've been meaning to buy mulch since the spring, literally, and haven't because of COVID. And now I didn't need to because I'm making my own mulch. So I don't know how Little House on the Prairie all of your experiences are, but I am definitely living my best Laura Ingalls Wilder life right now. And uh, it's just really empowering, all these things that you can learn how to do and, uh, you know, realizing that humans are, are capable of a lot of things. So that was fun. I had a great weekend. I hope you all did too. Hallie Stanford. Let's talk about Hallie. This is such an exciting conversation for me. Like everybody, you know, I grew up with Sesame Street. I grew up with the Muppets. I grew up more so, I guess, with the Muppet Babies and then later the Muppets. But like all the Jim Henson creatures are just ingrained in my memory and like just such happy memories. And I've always been really intrigued with just how the puppets work. Like I'll watch any behind the scenes video I can find about any of those puppeteers and how they make them, how they craft them, how they get them to to talk and, and look alive. Like, it's just so fascinating to me. And so to be able to talk to somebody that sort of knows that world inside out was just fascinating. You know, I, I've had the chance to meet some of the Muppeteers over the years uh, at the Emmy Awards. They used to do a uh, like a cocktail hour before you'd actually go into the ballroom. This is for the Daytime Emmys. And one year Eric Jacobson was there who he's taken over a lot of Frank Oz's characters, Grover, Miss Piggy. Uh, we get to meet Eric Jacobson, but maybe even more special was getting to meet Carol Spinney who was there with his wife and with Oscar. He had an Oscar, the grouch, uh, puppet with him. Carol Spinney of course does Oscar and big bird is kind of what he's more famous for. But I had a lovely talk with Carol Spinney. This was probably 10 years ago. Now he unfortunately just passed away a couple of months ago, but, uh, to say that these people had a big influence on my life is uh, is an understatement. It was so cool to get to meet these guys, and it was so cool to talk to Hallie. Hallie has such a cool history with the company, and she was willing to let me talk about sort of all of it, just from the time that she joined in 1993, all the way through to the sale of the Muppets in 2004 to the Disney Company, and you know all the shows that she's developed in her tenure, not just kind of Muppet and puppet-based projects, but a lot of shows for PBS, at the Science Kid, Dinosaur Train, Word Party. Uh, she's done stuff for Netflix, for Hulu, for Apple TV+. Plus. The Jim Henson Company is just a children's television powerhouse. And speaking of that, if you haven't seen it yet, they've got a new series that came out last year on Netflix, The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. It is so, so good. It is just beautiful and has these amazing puppets. And Hallie and her team were just nominated for the Emmy Award for Outstanding Children's Program for the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. So go check that out on Netflix. She's also working on a Fraggle Rock uh, series reboot for Apple TV Plus. But in the meantime, sort of as that got stalled because of COVID, There's a series of videos called Fraggle Rock Rock On that are available on Apple TV Plus. And I guess Hallie was saying those are actually in front of the paywall. So if you're not an Apple TV Plus member, you can still look those up and and view those. This is like the longest introduction I think I've ever done for a guest. But there is just so many cool stories. And uh, I'll let Hallie tell them. Right? That's the best thing to do at this point. All right. Here it is. My interview with Hallie Stanford. Uh, Thank you for making time for this. I'm really excited to talk to you, actually.
1: Of course, I'm excited to talk to you. I listened to uh, uh, several of your interviews and it was really enjoyable. It's just nice nice to hear other creatives hearing how they're managing uh, and thinking about COVID. You know what I mean? Yeah. You kind of get into your own inner circle and you're sort of repeating the same conversations with each other. So it was really, it's really fun. So I'm excited to talk
2: to you.
0: Yeah, it's it's been nice for me just to sort of hear all the different perspectives and to sort of realize yeah. that we're all in this boat together. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, How have you been handling the quarantine and just sort of keeping busy and staying creative and things like that? You know,
1: I've been handling it like everybody else. You know, there's the ups, (laughs) there's the downs, right? Sure. There's the crazies. Like, I wish that I could turn on a camera in my household and just film my family because we're hysterical. We're a sitcom.
2: Yeah. We're
1: We're like a one set sitcom right now. But you know what? I'm a super positive and joyful person. And I'm also a very anxious person, and I think those those qualities make me a really great producer. Yeah. Because I'll tell you, being anxious means I plan for the worst case scenario. I'm always like, "Give me the odds. Give right. me the odds. Tell me, tell me what it is. Tell me what's happening." And once I know, I plan for it. Yeah. Right. You and I both. We're getting relentless scary information but i'm just like got it i'm on it yeah what i'm gonna do
0: it is kind of like planning a tv show right of just sort of you get this data and you say okay so there's three possibilities here (laughs) like what's the worst case scenario one how do i deal with that and if the best one happens that's great that means i you know i can have dinner on time tonight or whatever it is exactly
1: i go to the eye of the storm as a producer right um and i you know one of the things i always say is that's that's next week's problem (laughs) what's 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 right now's problem? So I think that, you know, having that discipline has helped me produce COVID uh, <laughs> in, my, in my household. But, you know, I'm also a very optimistic and joyful person. So, you know, it's just sort of reshifting priorities with my family and my staff and my, you know, the artists and writers that I manage and work with and just trying to find meaning and passion in our work. Me personally. So then, of course, back to me personally, like, what am I doing I think I'm just trying to reconnect as much as possible with like those friends that matter. Yeah. I actually lost my best friend. She died oh, I'm um, sorry to hear that. a couple months ago. And that was uh, a real wake up call uh, in COVID and uh, very sad. It was, it wasn't unexpected. She didn't die from COVID. Her yeah. name's Thea Trachtenberg. She was an awesome producer for good morning America. But I think it kind of reshifted my priorities because as you know, in COVID and I'm sure you've heard you could just keep working
2: right there is
1: you don't have the two-hour commute you can just keep going and going and going but um really reshifted everything for me so i've actually reached out to a lot of um very dear friends who uh i hadn't in a while uh and including best friends who you know like live in oregon who i i'd never zoomed with we didn't facetime and and now i have my weekly dungeons and dragons game on roll 20 oh that's awesome with my best friends in oregon yeah I, you know, a happy hour with my college girlfriends on Zoom and uh, Passover's with my family, you know, so it's actually, it's actually been really great to realign and reconnect with yeah. my community.
0: It's it's a good excuse to kind of to do some of those things. You know, I, I've, I've said before on the show, like, I come from a big family. My dad is one of 12 kids. And they wow. started doing these family Zoom calls. I guess last week, we just passed our 20th call. And one of my Love aunts it. was saying, she was like, this is the most I've ever talked to. She's she's up in Northern California. I'm in Massachusetts. A lot of the family's in Ohio or, you know, just kind of spread out across the country. And we get together at weddings and funerals and things like that. But, like, to actually just once a week sit down and check in with each other and, like, how are you doing? You know, it is, it is nice to – even though it's not in person and you can't hug them, like – just to have some of that FaceTime and, and yeah, to have that conversation back and forth is so nice. Right.
1: Oh, absolutely. My niece, Beatrice, she just turned seven. Uh, I've never talked so much to Beatrice. I talked to her, I talked to her so much every day. Um, (laughs) Actually her mom, my, my sister's amazing. She, she actually owns a party goods company called Keys and Ganders. Like she is the birthday party queen, Yeah. but they did do, they did do a Harry Potter zoom birthday party where, my husband dressed like Dumbledore, and they oh, did wow. all this ridiculous stuff. It was really fun. <laughs> but the reason I'm being in a Beatrice is she's now in such in the habit of calling me yeah. that um, it's it's become a situation. <laughs> I was on, <laughs> I was on a, a Zoom panel, and I'm not kidding you. She, she, she called like at least ten times during oh, wow. it, and all these people were. I was so stressed, and I actually <laughs> I actually put myself on mute, and I used like a, a ventriloquist voice. You know, I looked like I was still smiling. Yeah, but I was like Beatrice. You need to hang up the phone.
0: I will call you later.
1: (laughs) Auntie Hallie will call you later. Exactly.
0: Oh, that's so funny. Um, So,
1: yeah, I actually do love getting to know her so much better than I ever would have, you know? I also have to tell you something else that, like... I'm obsessed with Little House in the Prairie.
0: Yeah, right. So, when you
1: said to me how I'm doing, I feel like it's been my handbook. Has anybody else said this to you?
0: Am no, I but I, you know what's funny use is I this just. Reference? Read, uh, well, I just read an article that I guess Melissa Gilbert is getting like all of this attention now because people are just re watching the show like crazy. And I guess she, she bought like a cabin in the Catskills and has been living up there. But like what? it was this primitive cat, like they bought it as a retreat out of the city like years ago. And so, we're going to fix it up and just kind of never did. And then when COVID hit, her, she and her husband moved up there and they're literally like raising chickens and, you know, what? like the whole, yeah. I'm
1: obsessed with the story now. Yeah. I'm obsessed with the
2: story. I'll send
0: you the article. What? It's, it's so cool. So yeah, I was literally just, like, I, I want to pitch her as a guest because I, I want to hear that oh, story now. To. But yeah, but there was a whole thing, I guess, on, I think on CBS Sunday morning, like a few weeks ago, oh, that God. they interviewed her and she was talking about just, yeah, everybody's rediscovering that show. And like, yeah, because, it's kind of living like, like in those times, right?
2: absolutely
1: i was like okay here's what we're doing we are accessing all my little house in the prairie knowledge (laughs) and that's how we're gonna live in our little condo on the prairie like this is happening i actually wear my hair in braids now I make everybody call me half-pint. It's the whole thing. <laughs> but uh, I definitely think it helped me cope. Like, okay, we're going to have a pantry now. Yeah. We're going to store food. Um we're going to bake bread. I break bread now. I
0: saying. do I do too. Yeah, I'm in the same mindset of just like, okay, you know what? Like if people could do this 150 years ago and like, you yeah. know, they were lighting fires with wood, like they didn't just, you know, turn on the heater or the air conditioner, like they had to work for that. Like I'm like, I can do that too.
1: Yeah, and then I suddenly I suddenly definitely understand as well like, okay, Wednesday is wash day. Yep. Friday is this day. You know, Sunday is cook the bread. So right.
0: it gives you something to look makes forward sense to. Now. Right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so I want to talk about some of the kind of professional stuff that like I know yes. um Fraggle Rock uh, Rock On was was one of the quarantine projects that you guys did for Apple TV Plus. Yes. And that was all shot just on iPhones, right? That was sort of at the beginning of all this.
1: It really was at the beginning of all of it. You know, I mean, when it all happened and everything got shut down. And by the way, we were working in development with Apple on a Fraggle Rock series. Oh, cool. So there already was this great love of Fraggle Rock at the network, but it was just in development. And when it happened, literally, the, I mean, the first thing, like, my job is is to, like, just service families and kids. Like, yep. how are we going to entertain them and how are we going to inspire them? And when this this happened, it was like, oh, my gosh, what can we do immediately? And it was this wonderful moment that Apple called, Tara Sorensen at Apple called and said, Hey, what do you think about doing shorts of Fraggle Rock that kind of uh, sends messaging to families at home right now? And I was like, you know what, that is the greatest idea. Yeah, so I was so excited that they even were ready to m- make that leap in production. That that's a rare thing, you know. There's not a lot of studios or networks that will be able to do such immediate programming, right? Except YouTube, of course, YouTube. Right. But, you know, with YouTube, you're making it uh, and you're lucky if they get to the finance it. But most most often uh, you're making it. So for Apple to say that it was pretty it was pretty exciting. I was like, yes, this is the way to immediately address some issues that are going on and how we can actually help children. Yeah. So it was it was very exciting. Um, you know, Fraggle Rock, if you know it.
0: I, yeah, uh, I remember it totally growing okay, up.
1: good. Well, the big theme of Fraggle Rock is um, connection. Yep. We're all connected. Uh, you see in the show itself all these different creatures and ecosystems that are connected. There's a lot of deeper issues that they explore in it. But it's also really fun and silly, right? So sure. it, it has it has a bit of a Susian vibe where lots of things can be told in metaphor. And so it was kind of this perfect franchise to, like, uh, tell these stories. So anyway, here's what we did. We reverse engineered it. Okay. We were like, okay, here's here's what we got. We have to, of course, there was not even COVID compliance rules in place right. when this thing got greenlit. Within two weeks, there were. Um, and then of course we adhered to them. But like we were really at the beginning. So the way we reverse engineered it, it was, okay, let's talk about connection. We're all in this together. We're not gonna say, we're not gonna talk about the actual, the actual virus, um, but we can definitely talk about when we're apart, we're all connected. So we reverse engineered it, and we decided, okay, let's have the Fraggles in different caves, right? And then let's have the Doozers create a Doozer tube that connects them, and they think it's fun to be yeah. able to sort of like walkie-talkies, but that's the way we'll shoot it. We'll shoot it as if they're in separate caves, and they're just talking to each other through uh, through, through, the Doozer tube. So we could reverse engineer it. That's how we were able to make it work so quickly, and then we just went for it. It was a 24-7 whirlwind, awesome production. We were like the A team. We were like, Doo, do, 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 <laughs> do, do, do. Like we were, we were figuring out constantly on the fly. And you had puppeteers who were setting up, we sent them lighting kits, green screens. They, we all stepped way outside our comfort zone. I think everybody can relate to this in terms sure. of tech,
2: totally. right? Like we Absolutely, all yeah. like,
1: whether it's Zoom or Cisco or Oh, my gosh, there's so even me trying to figure out my son's Xbox, like it's all a thing. (laughs) So everybody had to figure out, you know, the settings and how to light it. And we had we had a D. Everybody was remote, DP remote, director remote, writers, of course, remote executive producer myself and John Tartaglia remote everything through Zoom. And we would direct them from Zoom. But then the puppeteers had to turn on their own cameras, turn off the Zoom and start puppeteering. So uh, it was fascinating. Everybody was incredible. So then, you know, everything could be sent to an editor. Everything could be mixed, you know, in different places. So we just put it together. But it was this kind of constant, harmonious conversation. We had to constantly be in touch with ourselves and apple and they were incredible uh, seriously they were so incredible everyone i mean like had the head of music david uh taylor like on the phone all the time trying to help us get rock star celebrity talent it was pretty it was pretty special because you know what everybody was doing it for the greater cause right right to actually and and the shorts are free they're you know they're in front of the pay service they're they're there for kids and family and the music, you know, we definitely have got an incredible response from it. It actually had an impact, right?
0: That's sort of the, the one piece in this. And maybe it's just for me not being as steeped in the children's programming world. I've, I've got a seven and four year old here, but like I'm not, I don't work in, in children's programming. So, yeah. Um, but I feel like, you know, th- there's been so much effort made towards news programming or the late night shows or things like that just to keep adult entertainment going but I think it is important to have have an outlet for kids that, as you say, you don't have to hit it directly and say, you know, we're all dealing with this scary virus, but to just show that, look, you know, we can be in different places and still connect with each other. I think that message really came through, and that's really important.
1: Yeah, and we also just try to do, like, sort of give, you know, I always like to think we're giving parents, like, a little toolbox, too. So we're like, okay, so here's some ideas. There's right. one episode where the Fraggles are having a talent show, right? And so then you, they uh, they show uh, clips uh, of uh, other kids and families having talent shows. So, you know, just giving ideas as well. And there's certainly, I felt like, were enough videos out there, whether Sesame Street or, you know, a Nickelodeon town hall, were really addressing it like, wash your hands, right. or here's what the virus really means. But, you know, Fraggle Rock, you know, it does a little deeper, a little more soulful, spiritual. So we kind of went to a... It took a different approach
0: to it. It's funny because I watched some of those shorts uh, just before this interview, not realizing they had been done under quarantine at first. And my first reaction watching the first one was like, whoa, this is like a fraggle zoom. Like, w- what a strange concept. <laughs> yeah. And then I said, <laughs> oh, I, like I looked it up and said, oh, this was done during the quarantine, But like with the green screen and so the sets look so good behind them. <laughs> like I literally thought well, they were on physical set. for you. me. I didn't realize they were done remotely.
1: I have to do this like massive shout out to Don Tartaglia. And I'm telling you, you got to have him guest. yeah okay he let me tell you about johnny so first of all you know the green screen and digital you know flying in digital images behind puppets like it's a beautiful thing now right, right. we do have you know uh all of these uh, digital assets that where we could green screen in the sets but i'm telling you there were nights i would call johnny and he would be like i'm like what are you doing right now and he's like i'm making i'm making a stalagmite like he was actually <laughs> making like like rocks from fraggle rock and painting them himself in um in his home oh wow Uh, physical ones
0: to be like on on the stage wow with the with the muppet that's awesome
1: (laughs) not that every puppeteer did that but he did do that for his gobo scene so anyway he'll be very happy to hear that you felt the sets were were comparable to the original
0: yeah maybe that's what sold me was the the physical (laughs) stalagmite you know that's so cool (laughs) Um i I want to ask too just sort of on the on the quarantine stuff, like part of what you guys are known for now is animation as well, beyond just the puppeteer yeah. uh, productions. Has animation been able to continue during this time, yeah what's that yes. workflow kind of look like
1: it's you know what it's all on it's all on we have we have a dinosaur train movie uh, uh-huh. that's in production that's actually being delivered next week oh, wow. um and you know there were some definite hiccups with our overseas studios um just everyone getting readjusted but we got back on track with that movie and then we have another series that i wish i could tell you what it was but it hasn't been announced yet that is in production and you know what it was seamless seamless having said that as all i mean it's on schedule it's on budget it's going well but having said that of course there are hysterical stories where you know the you know voiceover actors are recording from their closets i mean oh, wow. come on like this is what we have to do you know when we did um fraggle rock rock on dave goals one of my favorite stories dave goals he's my hero puppeteer yeah, sure, right. who does you know Gonzo of the great and uh does goober he had to put a shirt over his head to record his boober lines. <laughs> I love stories like that. So of course, there there are compromises. I would say with the Zoom rooms in animation, which occurred, you know, I think that was at first a challenge because, you know, Zoom, as you know, it's incredibly focused. It can be very productive, but it's 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 exhausting. Right. Um, there's kind of no break from it. So I imagine nobody told me this, but I definitely imagine that that was a real adjustment for the writers in animation just to kind of get into the groove with that. I know for me, as a producer working with all different facets of the production. Sometimes it was, it was, it was hard for me too. Like there, there was kind of in the beginning of COVID, no break. I think we all felt like part of us trying to stay normal, right? Like, Oh, everything's, it's not that everything's fine, but like we can, we can do this and uh, you can't hide on zoom. Right. Right. So there it suddenly became, I think, uh, a bit of a uh, an exhaustion or a kind of a, like a weird adrenaline rush. I, uh, I admire the people.
0: that I think that, it's relaxed. Yes, right. I do Th- think it's good. relaxed. Yeah. I was just going to say, I admire the people that like, I- I'm not one of them. I feel like when I'm on Zoom, I'm like staring straight ahead at the lens, trying to smile, like trying not to get a drink of water. And sometimes you're mm-hmm. on with like people that like their eye line's like, you know, <laughs> 40 degrees away, like not even looking at the camera, don't care. They'll walk off screen. They'll come back. On. I feel like it's younger people more that way. But like for me, I'm like, you know, I feel like I'm on CNN or something. Just like I'm going to just stare straight ahead and smile the whole time. And yeah, like you said, that gets really exhausting, especially if you're doing several a day.
1: Yeah, I think there's an intensity to it. But uh, but back to answering your question. Yes, animation just keeps going. The flow keeps That's going. Great. And I have, I have quite a few shows in development that also we can keep up the pace of development with the scripts and the designs and the tests. So that keeps moving with the animation process.
0: That, well, that's good to hear. You know, it's such a trying time right now. And I feel like technology has helped us, right? my gosh, yeah. You're no longer tethered to a huge machine with, you know, like a closet-sized uh, computer. It's like you can edit and do VFX and everything on a basic laptop now with a couple of drives. And like, we got lucky that it's at this time
1: you know what we did get lucky that it's this time and we did get lucky that we do have things like facetime and zoom and texts and all of that to sort of keep up the connection visually as well as you know hearing each other right so important you know it's my job to create the creative culture in the company Sure. and you know the 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 whole thing is connection so i was just thinking about what you said about zoom that there are people who like are drifting (laughs) on and off and and all of that but like one of my like I realized, you know, into the process that that intensity when you're working on Zoom and man, we've been productive. But at the same time, the thing that also makes you creative and it gives you joy in your day is that those like loose moments. Right. You know, those moments of pause or, you know, goofing around that you don't really get on Zoom. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm sure I'm not alone is that uh, definitely that chat in Zoom has been a lot of fun. Yep. <laughs> but the private chat. I always pray that no one's reading any of my private chats, but <laughs> you can have a lot of fun with those and create that kind of connection and that goofiness that you have in a creative space yeah. at the same time. so. Honestly, I might miss that later hmm. because I'll be like, oh, where's my psychic chat right. <laughs> that I could I could have with somebody right now during the meeting. I guess it's texting. I also like I've definitely found with all the amazing artists that I work with that I've given them all my cell phone number. Yeah, I've never done that. I'm like, text me, text me whenever you need me. I'm here if you want to let, you know. Want to just chat in it? I definitely uh, have used text in a different way now than I would have before.
0: Yeah. We're all kind of adapting to all of this, I guess, right? There's, yeah, there's just all this new technology.
1: Let me ask you a question when you're all focused on Zoom. Are you, are your kids running in the background behind you or like uh, trying to get into your space? Um, just <laughs> it, it depends. Key.
0: So it's it's interesting. My, my wife uh, works in a school and she has a, uh, there's a Zoom session that's very loose where like it's a, it's a whole school thing for all the staff and teachers and everything. And she lets the kids be a part of that. And she's usually muted the whole time and they can climb on her and, you know, whatever. So like there are certain meetings where that's totally fine and, you know, you sort of accept it. And then we're lucky here in that we have a finished attic space and it has a lock on the door. (laughs) And so if either of us have something important to do, like right now, that's where I'm recording from is, you know, I go up in the attic and can lock the door And, you know, like they can't hear us. They can't see us. So it it is nice to have that break, at least. Like, I think if we were down in the living room trying to do all of our calls, you know, we had a home office space that is now the classroom because of homeschooling and stuff. So like, of course, like we had to move the office essentially up to the attic because what used to be our office for, you know, you check emails at night or something, but it wasn't really a full eight hour office. You realize it's just not, you know, it's right off of our dining room and it's just not practical for right everybody being home at the same time
1: i like that you have a level that you can go up to i'm on the same level we have locks but uh, definitely, there's there's the there's the trying to get into the lock, and um, or I, I I try sometimes the strategy of just leaving it open, and it's flowing, but that that definitely doesn't work sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's so tough, just that that work home balance, and and you know I feel like too, like you know sometimes you have to log off during the day during working hours to tend to family things, so then oh, yeah. you end up like working at night too, and it's just like it feels like kind of it, it never stops either side of it, right? The family side or the work side, it's just they're oh, kind I of totally both going agree. all the time, yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, I really did realize that, um, you know, I used to have from work to home that, uh, you know, that 45 minute commute. And now I have a 10 second commute, which there's no way to just sort of um, decompress. Yeah. And so I actually did work it out with my work that I would like you work later at night yep. but take off from like 10 to 12 during the day i call it camp mom yep just to have that daytime space with my kids but yeah then i'm working later so there you go it's yeah. a trade-off but, yeah uh,
0: we're all but doing the best we can <laughs> who knows you know um, I, I want to just sort of dive into your history with the company and stuff too, because mm-hmm. I feel like you came, you joined at a really interesting period uh, in 1993, right? Is that, that was your first yeah. year? So yeah. Jim, Jim Henson had died three years earlier and obviously he mm-hmm. founded the company and, you know, was bigger than life, you know, in, my, in, in sort of my head and I'm sure in everyone at the company's head. So I can imagine losing a figure like that must've been devastating to the organization, But at the same time, a year before you joined, 1992, Muppet Christmas Carol came out. And that to me Mm -hmm. is probably my favorite Muppet movie. Like it's one I grew up with, is probably part of it. I'm very nostalgic for it, but it just, everything about it is just so perfect. So I just, Mm -hmm. I'm really curious, sort of like you joining at that time, what was it that led you to the company first off? And sort of what was the mood like in those early days?
1: Well, um, and now I have the uh, I have Kermit the Frog song in my head from Up <laughs> at uh, Christmas Carol. Yep. it's it's singing in there right now. I always wanted to work for either Jim Henson or George Lucas or Steven Spielberg. Yep. Like I knew what I wanted to do from a very very young age that I wanted to work in film and television and like Kermit the Frog make make people happy yep. with the stories that I produce. And so for me, like Jim Henson was a massive hero uh, and influence on my life. I mean, I went to Wesleyan University and I was a theater major. and when while everybody else was doing very, very artsy projects, I was like, "I'm gonna make a puppet show with children. <laughs> like I was always inspired by him. Yeah. So for me, I kind of like when I came out to l a, I did interview at Amblin, didn't get the job. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't because I ended up at Henson. Yep. And then, you know, at that time, George Lucas had, hadn't even um, been working on Phantom Menace. So and it was open in North Northern California as well. Yep. So there were two places to go, right? It was Amblin or the Jim Henson Company. So I really wanted to be there and, um, you know, definitely co- connected with who ended up being my mentor. Her name's Alex Rockwell, and I love her so much. And she, you know, I connected with her, you know, and just let her know how interested I was and if there was ever an opportunity and stayed in touch with her. And in the meantime, worked in animation and worked for a creator named Savage Steve Holland, who had created some shows called Eat the Cat. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and he was wonderful. And uh, he was directing a show for the Jim Henson Company called City Kids. Okay. And so he, he knew how much I loved them. And he said, do you want to meet them and come with me? So he actually really did connect me uh, with them. And you mentioning about Christmas Carol, yes, I remember seeing that movie. It was my first year living in Los Angeles. And I remember going to the El Capitan Theater. Oh, wow. And it started and everybody lost their minds. Yeah. It was just such a joyful movie. It was such a joyful time. So when I ultimately came to the company, uh, it is because Alex, uh, Alex and I stayed in touch. You know, I did interview for her administrative position and she was like, You're ever qualified stay in touch and I was like I'll do anything (laughs) yeah but she she was true to her word and called me when she had an opportunity to hire a creative assistant and so I was her creative assistant and I was also the writer's assistant to Kirk Thatcher okay and Jim Lewis huge Muppet writers and directors and then Patrick Johnson who had a director's deal at the company and so I came on in this really fun role and so let me tell you what the 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 vibe was like at Henson then. With Brian Henson at the helm, it was incredible and so energetic and such a visionary. Alex Rockwell, this force in nature, and Charlie Rivkin, this brilliant businessman. They, they were just this incredible trio that were ready to take the company to the next step. Because when I came to the company, they had gone through their grief. Mm-hmm. And now they were entering the healing. Yeah, And they were like, it's like they picked themselves up, like took that that kind of that big breath. And they're like, let's do this. Yeah. And so that's when I came to the company, they were ready to go. And it was the most innovative time. Uh, everything from, you know, other Muppet movies that I worked on Muppet Treasure Island, the only feature film I ever worked on, they were doing all the Muppet movies. Muppets tonight was a uh, revamp. Right. My first week of work, I took notes in the first Farscape meeting. Wow. Which was called Space Chase then. So it was just so innovative, you know, bearing the big blue house. Yeah. Just so much happening at that time. And just a lot of it was carrying on the legacy. You can see that, you know, obviously keeping the Muppets going and innovating, but also sort of, you know, with, with Farscape, you know, sort of that was a Brian Henson and Alex Rockwell project, just trying to expand the brand, but it's still true to it, still felt very true to it uh, in the science fiction space, there was a lot of extension of brand and a lot of creativity and a lot of Jim Henson's creative culture in place. So I was kind of raised in it.
0: Yeah. Um, even it's though all he the people wasn't that there, had worked with him, right?
1: That's right. And yeah. Alex Rockwell actually started in the company as Jim Henson's creative
0: assistant. Oh, wow.
1: So she even understood as an assistant, the type of care and nurturing that you needed to give. But, uh, Anyway, it, 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 you know, in some ways, uh, not a lot has changed in terms of the creative culture of how we go about, you know, working on ideas and finding ideas. And work company that, you know, creates hand in hand with the creature shop at the same time as yeah. the writers. We create characters from the inside out. But, you know, I mean, of course, I brought my own. Ideas to the company and integrate it into culture, but that that Jim Henson spirit, I'm telling you, it's still alive there. That's great. Yeah, and there's a reverence even to this day. But then there was like a, a, a hardcore mission, and Brian, you know, was a force of nature, so creative, so energetic. He was such an inspiration to me as a young person. I know he'll hate me saying that because he's, he's not that much, by the way, he's not that much older than
2: me, but yeah. I was
1: only, I was only 23. Right. He, any idea was a good idea and it could come from anywhere. And you hear that people say that about Jim, but that's true about Brian. Yeah. And, um, I, I'm always very grateful to him. You know, he was always very encouraging of me speaking up and, you know, having my own ideas. And so anyway, it was just a really cool time. Yeah, you know, there's a reason I've stayed there so long.
0: Right, and it, it it seems like a lot of the people you work with have been there for a long time too, right? It's not it, this isn't a place with a lot of turnover. It seems like
1: well, um, yes and no. Okay. Meaning <laughs> that uh, here's what I'll tell you happens though. Anyone that's worked there still feels like an alumni. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, Once uh, you're in the club, a, you're you're part of it. Yeah.
1: You're part of the club. Uh, one uh, there's. Two people, uh, uh, Omar Camacho, who now is uh, one of the heads of Current and Nickelodeon and then Megan Casey, who's over at Netflix and Animation. They both are at Henson. And I think they always feel like they're still part of Henson. You know, I think Omar still has in his office, you know, picture of Jim and Kermit. So um, even if people move on, you know, they definitely uh, still feel like they're a part of it. Um, But yes, Nicole Goldman, who is the head of marketing, maybe you talk to. Yep. She and I started within the same couple of years of each other. Oh, we've wow. we've grown up together.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome.
1: I remember before we were married and had children. <laughs> now we're now we're old ladies together.
0: <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> um, I want to ask too, just sort of about um, just sort of another big change moment. It feels like from an outsider, anyways. And that was the sale of of the Muppet characters and the film library to yeah. Disney. How did that affect the direction of the company? I guess
1: right. Fun fact about me, when um, the company uh, was sold to uh, a German company called EMTV, yep. uh, I believe the year was, it was around like 1999, um, Oh, that's right. That was
0: before the, yeah, the, it was sold yeah. to them and then Henson bought exactly. it back and then it went back to, okay. That's right. Right. Okay. So
1: I actually, you know, as well as being uh, an executive uh, in the company at the time, I also am a producer and yep. that's true today. I'm president of television, but I also executive produce. That's the nice thing about Henson. You're on sort of two tracks at Henson and it's, you know, what's unique about our company. But I decided that I didn't want to work for EMTV anymore. I didn't really uh, align with them creatively um, or ethically, Um, but I loved Henson and I had created a show called Animal Jam. Okay. And so I wanted just to go work on it. And so I I left the company to go work for them on the show. And then I worked for a lot of other companies for a couple of years. And then so I'm telling you this because when I came back to the company it was completely different. So when uh the company bought the company back from EMTV, Lisa Henson, she called me literally, I think that day and said, Guess what? Uh, we bought back the company. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, that's so amazing. She's like, now you can come work for us. <laughs> and so um, I came back and together, uh, she and I uh, created Sid the Science Kid.
2: Oh, great. And yeah. we started
1: working on that show together. And then an opportunity came up where they needed to have somebody come in and head up uh, television. And Lisa asked me to come back on board. So that's how I came back to the company. And so when I came back, the Muppets were gone. I mean, when I worked at the company before that, it was a full-time job to service the Muppets. Right. And that was our job, right? We, we serviced the Muppets, but we also had an opportunity to create a couple of other types of franchises. Well, now the slate was clean. So when I came back, there was no projects in children's. So I, I basically had to sit and say, okay, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's create new characters and new families for the company and new franchises taking what we know to be true about henson properties um i like to say that uh we create first friends for kids because yeah. grover was my first friend <laughs> and um that we innovate and we even pushed what we did in preschool sort of looking back to you know jim henson with sesame let's start to innovate in, also in curriculum yeah and um really look forward to what kids need so anyway we just started building so what happened when the Muppets were sold to Disney was we had this opportunity to suddenly build our own new characters and franchises. See which ones worked, which ones didn't. So in that time, again, sort of like when I joined the first time, it was a very, very creative, vibrant time. Everything from Sid the Science Kid to Dinosaur Train to Pajanimals. Believe it or not, that first year I was back, started develop. I started developing the Dark Crystal.
2: Oh, wow. Um, pre- the the series? series. That, wow.
1: Yes. Then it was an animated series. Yeah. Uh Ultimately, thank goodness, when we ultimately saw this Netflix, uh, they wanted to make it a puppet series. But, and it would have been um,
0: animated, like, you know, it would have looked like hand-drawn animation or 3D animation. Not not CG to look like puppets. Not it CG. Would have been, okay. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, not CG. It would have been, like, you know, very, very cool 2D. Yeah. Um, but that's when it started. Uh wow. So it was just, like, and that's when we created the doozers. Yeah. Um, they had a Fraggle Rock movie in development. So I was like, please, please let me develop the Doozers. Um, so we took what legacy properties we had, like Fraggle Rock and um and Dark Crystal. But other than those, um everything else, you know, we we started to create and and do, you know, do new projects and productions. Brian Henson also has his own company within the company, Brian Henson Productions. And was developing all kinds of puppet comedy uh, series and you know sci-fi dramas and so. But once Dark Crystal happened, Lisa Henson and I decided that we're also going to keep developing in that family uh, sci-fi fantasy space as well because it was amazing, an amazing experience. Yeah. To um to uh, executive produce Dark Crystal.
0: Well, it's it's a phenomenal series, and I have to say too, congratulations on your Emmy nomination uh, for that Thank show. You. That's that's very <laughs> exciting and. You know, uh, voting's happening this month in August, and you know we'll find out winners in September. But uh, I I was so glad, so happy to see that show recognized because it's it's just—it's so beautiful, it's so well done. Um,
1: That was a real COVID high, right? (laughs) Like the unexpected surprises in COVID. It was very joyful. I I was the last to find out, by the way. So I was really excited. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So I just want to know, like you talked about it originally in development being an animated series. Like when it moved to puppeteering, the puppets on it just look so incredibly lifelike like you know i I don't know i think of like like a kermit or an elmo or something where it's you know it's foam and it's felt and the puppeteer Mm -hmm. has one hand in it and they can kind of manipulate the eyes a little bit sometimes you know but but very simple and these every creature in 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 dark crystal is just so lifelike and obviously you're working off off the film for reference too. That you know some of this was developed in the 80s but like i i, I want to understand i guess just how those puppets work like they're so you're complex. like how does it work
1: hallie yeah yes these are wonderful questions well um many different factors bring them to life that's that's our goal right we yeah. have to it's the art of um jim henson puppetry is making it feel even kermit the frog a little green felt uh, frog feel completely real so i'll tell you what the dark crystal um characters they are different of course than muppets we we call them creatures they need to appear as if they're living and breathing characters right not cartoon characters even though the gelfling are very they're very stylized i think that they still have a kind of you know there's a reason that George Lucas hired the Dark Crystal puppet builders back way back when to do Yoda. Yep. Right? It's still stylized, but it feels like it's living and breathing. Yeah. So part of that comes in the design of the puppets, right? And the sculpting of them. The Jim Henson Creature Shop is an incredible place with uh, amazing artists and technicians. And their number one job is to create a puppet that can be performed to feel lifelike yeah so with dark crystal puppets they were sculpted out of clay and they go through this whole molding process and latex and all this beautiful painting to make them feel real dark crystal was supervised also by pete brooke and toby froud oh, um,
2: yeah. son,
1: son of brian and wendy froud sure and then brian uh, and wendy did work on the series of course and brian continued to design for it all the new characters and everything so you had this design team and build team that were top notch but what i want to say is also they had to be built to be technically performed so the way that they're built whether there are mechs you know with blinks or they're definitely different puppets than the ones even though they may look the same they're definitely different than the ones in the 80s because the ones in the 80s were operated by a billion people Whereas these were operated, the Skeksis, at least by two or three, uh, if you count people, you know, working the remotes of the eyes and, uh, you know, different different things that have to come to life remotely. So, but then you have the great puppeteers. So, see, first you have the puppet and then you have these amazing puppeteers and they bring them to life. They bring them to life, not only through voice, but acting. These are actors. Right. You know, I think sometimes people, they're not prop people. They're incredible actors who understand the nuance of performance. So, but those puppets need to be performable. So again, it's just like beautiful balance between the creature shop delivering on, you know, very performable and easy to work characters and then great puppeteers. P.S. A lot of adjustments had to be made on characters, you know, like, like, you know, you might get a puppet to a set and be like, oh, this is heavy, right. um, you know. And so then you'd have the creature shop figure out, OK, how do we lighten this up? How do we how do we help the performer? What harness do we need? So it's just this great combination. And then on top of that, you have our director, Louis Leterrier, who, through the way that he sees the puppets in the camera and shoots them, is capturing that vibrancy and uh, and the spirit of the character's. And he did something that I thought was very interesting, which was it's the first time we ever did this in a Henson show, he used a Steadicam. Oh, really? Puppeteers are used to looking at themselves in a monitor yep. all the time and, you know, watching their performance and making sure that their line is tracking, that they're feeling, you know, that their performance is as authentic as it can be. But when you're doing it from a Steadicam, uh, you can't see anything. Right. And so there's a lot of trust between him and the performers because it was pretty scary, I think, for them at first. Like, we can't see what we're doing. He's right. like, but I can see. He's like, yeah. but I can see what you're doing. And so I think that Steadicam also gave it some real life and action and like motion that we never got before this iteration. Because if you watch the original, you'll see that uh, that sometimes when characters are moving, they're just people in suits, right? right? Whereas the, our pup- it was our puppets. And then, wow. of course, there's vis- there are some visual effects uh, that we do have within the, the characters themselves, too. So we have this character, the Skeksis, called the Hunter. And um, he's really scary. And he, <laughs> he, can, he can move quickly. He was a really light puppet, hmm. um, more of a, like a kind of almost like a stunty costume puppet versus the other Skeksis, so he can move. But then, you know, through visual effects, there's moments where the hunter's like leaping through trees. So that had to be matched. And I think that, I think that gave it kind of a cool way of looking alive as well. So kind of all these different techniques, I'm telling you all these things help make it feel like they're alive.
0: Yeah. Well, and the other wild thing, I mean, you you talk about just sort of the idea that, you know, there, there's a puppeteer who's doing the mouth. There's another one doing the arms. And then there's somebody Mm -hmm. remotely, you know, controlling the eyes and some of the expressions, you know, with a radio controller. But then you also had performers that, like, the voice talent was separate yeah. from the puppeteer, which often isn't the case, right?
1: That's correct. There, are, there were some puppeteers, like Victor Urid, who's a genius, who did Hup, who, you know whose voice remained as the, as the puppet character. But, I, you know, most of the, the voiceover talent, Mark Hamill, I, he said it in many interviews, he gives credit to Ollie Taylor who played the scientist who just really gave him his cues and, right. you know, sort of, it was almost like his, his, you know, his coach yeah. uh, on how to do the performance. I mean, there are other actors that kind of took a different approach and, and that was wonderful as well. You know, they were, they were working off of performers who were, like I said, they're actors. So, you know, they had a nice guidebook or our celebrity voiceover talent yeah. to, uh, to do the characters. But the other thing that was wonderful about having, the different voice talent too, is it really gave a diversity to all the characters as well right. in their, you know, in their voice, in their voices, whether they were younger or older or, you know, different races. It was, it was really, I thought a lovely, I thought it really worked out. Yeah. And I was really also, by the way, very, very happy that many of our puppeteers got their voices heard in the show as
0: well. That was pretty exciting. That's awesome. Um, I want to ask too, just sort of about the development of, of sort of when, when you're developing a prequel like that and you sort of know what the end point is, right? You, you have the original movie to work off of. So you know, you're trying to build to that story point, but because it's, it's a TV series now, like let's take star Wars for an, as an example, like George Lucas knows, okay, I got three movies to try to build to a new hope. Like Mm -hmm. that, that's my starting place. And I'm going to do it across three films. For you guys, you hope for a season two, right? And maybe a season three, maybe a season four, like just trying to figure out sort of what what the arc of that story looks like how, how complicated is that you know what I mean'll
2: never tell I'll
1: never tell you the <laughs> secrets, Heath. I'll never tell no we definitely have an end point in mind um, okay. and I uh, I definitely think that the writers know that they could extend it for two seasons or they could wrap it up in another you yep. know so definitely the you know that that those are conversations that we have I think that our goal with thra uh, the world of Thra is that it is, you know, it can be as big as Star Wars and yeah. there are many stories within it. I love that Agra saying, and begin all the same. So, you know, you can see that sort of circle that we could keep creating more, more and more spirals of stories around yeah. that sort of, that central story. So I think we imagine that there are many stories to be told. Um, but this particular story, which is about when the Gelfling discover that the Skeksis are bad, and that they are draining them, and that they are darkening their world. I definitely, we definitely know what that arc is, and how how it ends. And everybody thinks they know how it ends. Yeah, but they're, but maybe they don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. So um.
0: <laughs> that's what keeps people tuning in. Uh, exactly. I want to ask one last thing too on kind of the story of just uh, there, there, like all myths, I guess it feels like there's a really strong allegory to the time that we're living in right now? (laughs) Like, just, uh, you know, the difficulty of standing up and fighting oppression, environmental degradation, just sort of all of that, like, how much did current events play into the shaping of this story?
1: Well, here's the interesting thing, you know, as I told you that first, you know, first year that I was back at Henson, which is like, what, like around 2003, 2002, we had started that story. Um, and whenever I develop anything, I ask, why now? Why yeah. are we telling this story now in the world that it's going to be shown, which is our world? Yeah. Why now in that world, that the story that we're telling, and why now in those characters' lives? And so, of course, the most exciting thing for us was, well, why now would be, you know, it would be for the, the Gelfling discover that the Gelfling are lying to them and the world is corrupt. And why now in that, you know, in these characters' lives, well, these young people are the ones that are the ones that discover it. Um, and so it's going to shift their lives. But here's the thing that's incredible is that all of those themes of darkening and, you know, the skexies, which the Skeksis were created PS in the eighties. Yeah. Those were issues relevant back then. Yeah. And uh, what I loved about dealing, de- like developing the show around the young people of the world was, I felt like, because at the time we had developed it also as a kids series. Yeah. It, ev- it evolved into a primetime show, but it was this idea of like, you were at that time in your life when you are a, you're not quite an adult yet and you're not a kid anymore and you're just trying to find yourself and what would, hap- what would happen if you were the one that knew that your world was all corrupt? And mm. so, you know, those all of that existed throughout the entire 14 years that we like ultimately made it. So I always feel like, everything happens for a reason. I do. And I feel like the, the uh, false starts that we got with the show as a kids show, an animated show, it was all leading us to this time to have it on Netflix, to have it be live action and that the messaging was needed now.
2: Yeah,
1: And it just so happened that we uh, made it during a time when Young people are so awesome and speaking out, right? Yeah. The, the best advocates of all. So I just feel like it just came out at a time that it, it but the, the themes were always there is what I wanted to say, but it came at a time when it was needed to be heard. And then of course the writers had some fun <laughs> tweaking things. Uh, I think it was, well, I'm not going to attribute it to one of them, but I do think it was Jeff Addis <laughs> who wrote, <laughs> who wrote the scroll keeper saying, Sad, so sad. Um, so I think they had some fun poking at our our contemporary politicians <laughs> um, and uh, uh, making them feel uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty point on. So anyway. I don't know if that answered your question, but
0: no, it did. But it, I guess it makes me think too of just you know sort of that that power of myth and and legend and oh, stories yeah. of just you know like Shakespeare resonates five hundred years later, right? Like it just if you exactly. can tell a powerful story, it's a powerful story because even if the the specific circumstances, you know, as as you're talking about sort of developing this in two thousand two, two thousand three, I'm thinking about the situation at that time and saying, oh, you're right, like this fits perfectly yep. in that era this could have gone on air at that time and and been per, a perfect fit and you know you watch it today and i guess that's what the audience brings to it too right you bring your current baggage <laughs> along when yeah. you see something and and you you look at it through those eyes
1: and it it you know i'm sure that that the story works for people on different levels that's what you know myth and legend do they work on your spirit and subconscious and so some people might connect more with deep story of a world darkening. And um, and yet a year ago, I wouldn't have looked at the darkening as a virus. Right. But now when I watch it, I think, wow, I bet this has a real different meaning for kids that are watching it right now for the first time. That Yes, there is. A, you know what I mean? So you, you can always sort of adjust it to your situation. And you know what? You know, history has shown us there, you know there there will always be uh those that you have to fight you know speak up against and um be brave enough to come together and and fight for what's right and fight for a race or you know fight for fight for the planet um so hopefully it will be a classic and constantly a uh you know a mythic tale that you know kids and families will go back to i hope
0: no I, I think so and it's like i said it's just such an immersive world and you know it's it's a place that yeah, as you say, it feels rich, and it feels like you can inhibit it in in so many more ways beyond you know whatever arc you guys have planned for it right now. It could go off and well. In the, the meantime, just, yeah.
1: In the meantime, until we can all go back in production, <laughs> we have we have a lot of awesome you know graphic novels and you know books that come out. And Jolie just had one that come out. I think it's called Song of Throw, So we'll just keep it up in other mediums that can you know yeah. can be can come out now right. uh, until we can all be back in.
2: Until it's Um, safe, yeah. Bigger
1: production again. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right. Hallie Stanford there. How amazing was that talk? Like, it's, I I can't get over how cool her job is. How cool, it sounds like everybody at the Jim Henson Company is. You know, they have one of the coolest uh, studios in Hollywood. It's an old Tudor-style set of buildings that I guess was built originally by Charlie Chaplin. Like more than 100 years ago, I think 1916, 1917, something like that. But it's on La Brea, just south of Sunset in in Hollywood. And I remember my first trip to L.A., driving by it, and there's a big Kermit the Frog on the top of the building and just being like, whoa, that is cool. And, you know, if I lived in L.A. right now, I would probably be begging Hallie for a job because it just seems like the coolest place to work. But I'm here in Boston. I'm here on my, uh, on my microphone talking to you guys. And I will, uh, I'll continue to do that for the foreseeable future. Got a new show coming on Thursday. So make sure you subscribe to get that first in your feed. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Drop me a line. Leave me a message. And uh, I'll talk to you on Thursday. Stay safe, everybody.